0: Hello, welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Kristen Turner and my guest today is Kay Goldschmidt, who is with me to talk about Basso Mundo, Brazilian Music in Transnational Media Industries, published by Oxford University Press in 2020, which explores the circulation of Brazilian music in the global north since the 1960s. The challenge faced by Brazilian musicians who wish to break into anglophone markets is formidable. They must deal with the demoralizing effects of the exoticization of the music and the performers, while also struggling with networks of distribution that create fads and just as quickly drop them. By balancing their attention between the circumstances in the global music marketplace with the conditions in Brazil, Goldschmidt uncovers the misrecognitions and misunderstandings that plague so many transnational cultural exchanges and collaborations. Throughout the book, Goldschmidt traces several lines of inquiry, including the changes over time and the different kinds of tastemakers that introduce and mediate Brazilian music to Anglophone listeners, the role of significant films and film scores in shaping both the music that comes to the international marketplace and the framework by which Anglophones understand what they are hearing, as well as the influence of Brazil's national branding priorities on the music industry. Thank you so much for joining me today, Kay. I'm really looking forward to our discussion. I'm so happy to be here. So um, how did you, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to the topic of this book? Sure. I was like many
1: uh, aspiring jazz musicians uh, in the 90s, right around the time that Antonio Carlos Jobim, the very famous Bossa Nova composer, died. It was really hard to escape his music, and so when I was playing my jazz trumpet in Southern California, I found that I was playing an awful lot of bossa nova songs. They were all over the real book, which is that fake book that most aspiring jazz musicians use. I was never very good. But um, really, it was just music that I loved. And I didn't know you could study it. I I remember being really surprised when in my final year of undergrad at UCLA, I had been taking many music courses, I took a, a huge diversity that I could within UCLA's music history program at the time. And I remember it wasn't until my final two quarters that I encountered anything from Latin America. One was in Ray Knapp's class. Uh, so Ray Knapp taught a, a part of our music history survey, and he had um, one of the TAs teach about Carmen Miranda, and samba. And the other exposure I had was when a graduate student in the ethnomusic, no, a graduate student in the composition program taught a course on Brazilian music in the ethno department. And I took that class. And I remember I had this moment when I was looking at the map of Brazil. I was you know 21 years old, thinking I'm pretty cool. And I remember looking at this map and thinking, this is a gigantic country. How come the only things that penetrated the United States were Bossa Nova and Samba. Why is that all we know? And I remember being just really uncomfortable with that reality. And, you know, I grew up in Southern California in the late 20th century when there was a lot of tension around Latin American influence Um, in California. There were a lot of right-wing measures to try to eliminate Spanish language government materials, for example, or to not allow people who weren't citizens to get access to healthcare or education services. I remember this. It politicized me in a really um, important way. And at that moment, when I was looking at that map, I thought, wow, this is something. I don't have the words for this. I want to understand it. Um, I ended up doing really well in that class. When I got to grad school, the very first project I did was on Carmen Miranda. But I realized that um, I went to UC San Diego. I realized that I wouldn't be able to do the project without learning Portuguese. I didn't have the resources. And it wasn't until I came back to UCLA for my Ph.D., and there was this a really amazing timing of these amazing Brazilian musicians coming to campus and the due date for the FLAS grant, the Foreign Language and Area Studies grant. They they were like right on top of each other. I went and saw the Assad brothers play at Royce Hall. And I decided that night, you know what? I'm going to apply for this grant. I'm not going to delay understanding this music and learning Portuguese any longer. Cause that was, you know, a good, Oh wow. Four years after I had that moment with the map and I won the grant and that was, and then right after that, I was at the Grove shopping mall in Los Angeles and I heard the English language edit uh, with Astrid Gilberto and Stan Getz of the girl from Ipanema playing at a mall with a light show, right? Light show and water fountain. And I remember this moment going, yes, I'm doing the right project, right? It was this like, there is something going on here with like people hearing this music in like retail spaces and there not really being much of a language around what was going on with that. Besides, oh wow, it's weird that this is happening, right? I wanted to have better access into that moment in that shopping mall. And I and I know that's a really roundabout way of getting there, but that is basically what happened because while I was starting to notice that nobody was that there was really hard to get English language resources on that moment of when Brazilian music became popular in the United States. It was also popular again, right? I would go around LA, I like would hang out with DJs and I would hear it everywhere. So I was in the midst of this, like um, what's the word for that revival, but with like electronic dance music, this is happening at the same time that I'm hearing like old school Bossa Nova. And I'm like looking at this map and the, the combination of these things really made me wonder What on earth happened? And I remember going to one of the professors in the musicology department at UCLA and saying, okay, so bossa nova was really important to jazz in the sixties and seventies. Why hasn't anybody studied it? And this scholar looked me straight in the face and said, nobody wants to learn to speak that language. And I was just like, well, I'm learning the language watch me go. Like if this is if this is the reason why we can't understand what's going on here, I'm going to do it. Like that's what grad school is for, right? You you learn the language, you dive in deeply to something that you can spend a few years with. In my case it ended up being over 15 years, but you know you you dive into something so that you can try to understand the question you're asking. And that's what happened. It was this confluence of all of these strange things coming together and me wondering why don't I just dive in? So I did. And I, I really dove in. Like, it was like, I went to Brazil. I did the research. Like, I did the, I did the work. But like, it was really odd to me that nobody had bothered to ask the question before. I, I think I understand better why nobody has asked the questions I was asking. But um, yeah, I, I just decided to go for it. And doing the project the way I did it meant that I had to have a very good grasp on popular music history in two separate places, if not three, right? I had to understand what happened in the United States, Brazil, and England. And that, um, I think that's tricky. I don't think that's the kind of project everybody wants to do.
0: Well, that certainly, you know, stood out to me that, you know, sometimes you get books that are about transnational circulation, but it's really about just the place that it's circulating two or one of them, or, you know, it's very rare that you get two, that's hard enough, the, you know, the Brazil to U S but then adding the UK and all of that definitely adds the complexity of the research and, and the, and the writing challenge I would expect as well to try to keep all of those things straight. Um, so that definitely comes through as as a, a challenge for the project, is uh, with your sources and and with the writing as well. Sort of keeping all of that straight. <laughs> Thank <laughs> yeah. you. It, it was the it was the hardest part. I got to say. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, since you spoke about the girl from Ipanema uh, and as one of those ways that you got into the project, maybe we can also start there. This is this book is really pretty sprawling in the sense that it covers from the 1960s until very recently. Mm-hmm. But one of the um, places that you start is this moment when Brazilian music and particularly the Bossa Nova becomes a fad in the 60s. And yeah. um, uh, and you talk about there was a, several things about that that interested me, and one was how um, it, the way that the bossa nova was um, received by jazz critics really brings up to me. Two two aspects of jazz criticism that um, that I'd love for you to talk about more. One is the racialized aspect of jazz criticism and how, in the '60s, you know, yeah. that's a huge subject about how Bossa Nova was received within the larger context of jazz concerns about blackness and about the civil rights movement and and mm-hmm. um, jazz's engagement with that. But also, there's to me sort of a, a cultural hierarchy or even a class issue as well, where jazz critics so often want to to frame the music as being sort of elite and being above commercial concerns and, you know, sort of moving beyond its background as, you know, popular uh, uh, sort of, I don't know, the lowest common denominator of popular music. So, and that also seems to get tied up. So can you talk a little bit about that, you know, how did we get from Brazil to America or, or Brazil to the Anglophone world without Bossa Nova? And what's, you know, what's going on with the um, reception of that, um, of that music?
1: Well, well, it's interesting because a lot of jazz musicians were interested in this music prior to the jazz samba record that Charlie Bird and Stan Getz put out. So that came out in 1962. But before that, there was the film Orfeo Negro or Black Orpheus, which won all of these awards. Um, And if you talk to Brazilians, they're like, yeah, the sad soundtrack's actually not Bossa Nova. And so technically the soundtrack sounds a lot like Bossa Nova, but it's almost there. Like it's just like right before that moment. But the record did really well. Right. And all of these jazz musicians were listening to it and trying to figure out how to make it work, especially on the West Coast. And when Latin jazz approaches were entering into the the jazz press and into recordings, there was a really strange, I'm going to say narrow understanding of what Latin jazz could be. And there was also an intense discomfort with anything that wasn't fast and polyrhythmic. And I, I, it took me a long time to understand this piece of the puzzle. And I even like went digging into like the history of payola and how the jazz press responded to that. I ended up cutting all of that out of the book, it got to be too long. But there was this intense discomfort with like, Nat King Cole releasing a romantic Latin album, right? Pop vocal jazz doing Latin in a way that wasn't polyrhythmic, that wasn't mambo. Because what they understood to be hot Latin jazz was just that. up tempo, Polyrhythmic. So it played into all of these really messed up racialized expectations of what Afro Latin America was about. And you look at the musical output of all of these countries, and there is very little discomfort, if not zero discomfort, with Latin men. So Brazilian men, Cuban men, Mexican men, these are the main sources of this music coming across the U.S. border, doing romantic music without it being any sort of threat to their uh, masculinity the way that they could do these slower styles with the same intensity that say Tenga by Machito sounded right. That the same kind of, you know, you, you, you look at the Afro Cuban music that was so popular just before Bossa Nova hit, and it would be just as, as intense with the rhythmic nuance, but it would be at a much slower tempo and the texture would be with violins and flutes. Right. And, these critics just could not understand what that music was doing. They couldn't understand Latin music beyond this very narrow, um, I'm going to say exoticized understanding that had to come with hot rhythm. And when I found all of that information, I was like, well, that sure explains a lot because you see similar kinds of discomfort around black musicians, uh, doing slower styles, right? There was this expectation that it only Miles Davis really got to do the slow stuff, right? Like he was the one guy who, who was given that much license to be vulnerable and strong. Right. And you look at cool jazz and the entire legacy of that, of being like restraint, but everybody knew those guys could rip if they wanted to. Well, part of the problem was These critics didn't understand what was happening anywhere else. And so when you had this reception of Antonio Carlos Jobim and Joao Gilberto and all of these really fantastic Brazilian musicians playing a slow, subdued style with rhythmic ideas that these guys didn't understand, it it was a very uncomfortable moment, right? It was right on the edge of tacky or played out, especially once Americans tried to understand the rhythms. Because the right micro rhythmic way that these musicians from Brazil were playing the bossa nova rhythms or the samba rhythms was so different just in terms of where the emphasis is and where the speeding up happens. It's so different. And you try to get like an American jazz drummer to play it. And it just sounds corny. And I I say this in the book, you know, I think I, I talk about it being square, um, because it doesn't quit, it doesn't fit. Um, this really amazing uh, dance and performance studies scholar named Barbara Browning talks about: if you think too much about the subdivisions of the beats and samba, you're you're gonna you're gonna trip, you're gonna mess up, you're not gonna do it well. Because the micro rhythmic sensibility has to be felt, and I think these guys who were critics never bothered to try to feel it. I honestly believe that. I didn't put that in the book. But I'm like, this is after reflecting on it. I'm like, I just think they didn't do it. But the really messed up way, the, the biases towards um, placing Western values onto these musicians, it, it happened to Black musicians all the time, right? You look at this really infamous moment when Gunther Schuller tried to interpret Blue 7 through like motivic analysis, that's the same kind of messed up thing that's happening here with these musicians. Oh, wow. These chords sound like Debussy. So therefore, right. We understand it this way, but you're not doing rhythms in the way we understand. And you'd see these uh, critics complaining that it didn't swing. Why didn't it swing? Because it's not the same value of swing, right? They would actually say this. They would get mad at, 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 at Joao Gilberto or Joao Donato are all of these original bossa novista guys, right? That's how you call them. For not playing with the same rhythmic sensibility that's coming from from North America. And it just blows your mind that they were just
0: that thick about it. I hope that that gets to yeah, some of you. Yeah, no, absolutely. But I, I guess part of me was, you, you talked a lot about in the book about how they also were uncomfortable that it seemed faddish, that, yeah. you know, people were oh, coming oh, out oh, with yeah. so, right? And that, to me, that's what triggered my idea of, is this them trying to, you know, well, we're too good for this sort of, ba- these fads, right? Jazz is...
1: Is beyond
0: that now, basically. You know, we're about true art and you don't have fads in true art, kind of thing. But they did have fads, right? Like the first (laughs) thing is,
1: right? Like, like, so Quincy Jones's soul bossa nova, which opens up the second chapter, you know, he almost called it something else. And then he threw in these Brazilian effects at the beginning with this instrument called the cuica, which uh, you'll often hear in samba when things are heating up. It sounds like a dog barking a bit. but it's a friction drum. And he threw that in at the beginning. And there's a little bit of polyrhythms, but it might as well have been any other style. But Quincy Jones is like, yep, I know how to make money. Right. And he, and the idea that you could throw in little touches of bad bossa nova rhythm and make lots of money was something that really freaked out the jazz press. So there were these two elements, right? Like this music is too slow and it's a fad. And A lot of music scholars who work in popular music, especially with the feminine popular, have noted, right, that if you have something that's too popular, it gets feminized because of the relationship of teenage girls and women to massive commercial success. Norma Coates really famously wrote that article, but it's something that uh, you see repeated over and over again, that this is somehow a threat to jazz men's masculinity if they stay in this genre too long. But the thing is so many of these musicians just loved the harmonies of this music. They loved it. They never stopped playing it. And so it was this fad that happened, right? It happened for about 18 months and then it went away. And then Creed Taylor finally succeeded in selling his recording to Verve and a a recording he made right after this really infamous Carnegie hall concert. That was a showcase for Bossa Nova in, uh, in the United States he made this recording with Stan Getz, Joel Gilberto, Tony Antonio Carlos Jobim and Astrud Gilberto and he couldn't sell the record because it was too weird <laughs> it was too weird but this ends up happening after the crest of the wave of the fad is basically over and then boom it happens again so there's this kind of like aftershock or a supernova is the language I use in the book, because it happens so far after the initial popularity runs its course, right? You have
0: a fad happen, boom, it's over. And then, oops, it happened again. Yeah. Yeah. It did seem to me in reading the book that it was, there's the fad that everyone knows about. Like, even I knew about it. And I'm not any kind of jazz expert, but mm-hmm. then you see that the musicians never put it away they've always you know they continue their interest in it it's just it, it you know it just comes up and down and up and down as yeah as, as re- the you know recording industry is more or less um willing to entertain it i guess
1: <laughs> well not just the recording industry but also audiences right it's um and at least when I was younger, you know, in my late teens and twenties, bossa nova was kind of this music that would show that you had bothered to look beyond what was on the top forty. If you were somebody who knew about this music, which a lot of my friends who were not music majors did know about it, they felt they would fall in love with it and they would talk about it being so important to them. And it was like this precious thing that they would try to keep hidden, right? Like you might play it. Uh, for yourself in your home but it wasn't something you'd play at a party unless it was chill out music right and that was what it was doing in the late 90s and early 2000s just before around the same time that the electronica thing happened but all of these people I knew who were not studying this stuff and who were not some of them went on to become doctors right like they had this music and it meant a lot to them And when I was around UCLA as an undergrad, and I would play it for other people, everybody always loved it. And I was always struck by the fact that it was just weird enough from the daily life of these teenagers that I was around, being one of them, that it made you seem sort of like unique or would stand out. And I... I, I liked a lot of other music that was strange at that time, but I remember the Bossa Nova stuff kind of having this like way of grabbing people. Um, and I always thought that was odd. This is not in the book at all. You're getting <laughs> personal information about me.
0: Well, um, maybe we should uh, think about one thing that was in the book that sort of is circling around what you've been talking about and and is the, the- uh, um the gendered aspect of this, which you I think bring out several times in relation to the films that you talk about in particular. Yeah. And that was something I was surprised to see as much information about film music and film scores and and these these sort of important films um, as you have in the book. So maybe you can if you, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about not the films that you see as being important in this transnational exchange, and how I was particularly interested about how, the way that shaped how people understood the music then, then they that may not have anything to do with those films, but then hearing Brazilian music in general, it seemed like yeah. you know, and I wasn't sure if, if it was a you know, are the films creating those exoticized gendered source of stereotypes or are they confirming stereotypes that were already around? You know, it's sort of a chicken and egg question perhaps, but Well, I'm gonna say the stereotypes were there
1: before. Um,
0: because you had
1: prior to the bossa nova moment you had carmen miranda and you had the the femme fatale the latina the you know the dangerous latina woman in film noir right so you had this like precedent for the sexy temptress thing which i find really difficult and disturbing and you know it's it's Something I try to say in the book repeatedly, um, and I say it in the introduction, and I come back to it again a few times, is that Brazilian people have been gendered and racialized in the U.S. in a way that has had a profound impact on what kinds of music is successful with that crossover context. So in general, the women who found success in the U.S. And I tried to talk about at least one per chapter. Like, I actually made an effort to do that because I kept on seeing it happen. They would get even more exoticized because they sang with an accent. Even if they were white passing in Brazil. And many of them were, right? Um, So I talk about... The only woman I talk about who... Uh, at length in the book, who does not pass for white in Brazil is Margaret Chimenezis. And she's in the fourth chapter when I talk about world music in the eighties and nineties, but everybody else is like maybe brown skinned, but mostly very white passing in Brazil. Right. But these women, when they come to the U S they are racialized as other. And then they sing English with a heavy accent And they're exoticized and sexualized. And uh, one of the films I talk about at length is called The Deadly Affair, which is one of. um, Wow. So what's the name of that that spy author who passed away recently? John le Carré. That's it. Thank you. (laughs) It was it was a John le Carré novel that got adapted. I'm I'm like, I'm forgetting his name. I used to talk about this stuff all the time John Le Carre's book uh, I think it was like call from the dead or something um, got adapted into the deadly affair and the film uses Astrud Gilberto's voice in Portuguese to signify sexual deviance or or sensuality and it's all over the movie um, and I wouldn't have even known about this film except I was looking up Quincy Jones music this is how I found it right and then I found out that it was like actually a really interesting text and it wasn't the only one, you know, and I, and I remember looking at this film going, my God, they, they have Portuguese in the score, but when they released the soundtrack, they had Astrud Gilberto singing in English. Right. And mm-hmm. so that, yeah. that's part of what happened there. But every time she appears in the film, that her voice the, and what she's doing in Bossa Nova, it's like a moment of sexual tension that's also probably very dysfunctional. And I was like, "Huh, that's interesting." And I in the book I talk about this as being a very adult context because it's it kept on happening in these contexts when it was about adult situations about sex and sexuality. Sometimes about mourning, sometimes about like this this really terrible movie um where a guy becomes is is mute. Right, um, I talk about that film at length too. <laughs> that one I had to go to a film archive to watch. It, it's called *The Gentle Rain*, and um, that one also had Astro Gilberto's voice um, in the promo materials because they put out she she sang the song on one of her records, right? But she had this a way of singing that sounded passive, right? Because she was a little bit flat, and she also sang with a heavy accent. And when I talk to to older men about this, you know, people who I know who own the records, they would say, oh, yeah, she just seemed really sexy because of that. They, they would make one of them actually use far more vulgar language to talk about it with me. And I was like, OK, then my interpretation of this moment is not off, right? Like this is something that actually shaped how the music went from being a teen dance fad to being sexy background music. And if you looked in some of the old stereo uh, review magazines, sometimes they would be explicit about this being really good makeout music, right? They would actually use that language because the assumption was the only people who were reading these magazines were straight white men. And so they would talk about it in these uncomfortable ways, I'm going to say, as as somebody who was digging around in the British Library or, you know, other, other archives, finding Really clear evidence that these voices as exoticized were doing that kind of work at that moment. And yeah, um, but it kept on happening. These, these women would sing and they would be sexualized. And they would be, it, it would be blatant in the, in the media record, like it was just so not subtle.
0: So do you think, um, you know, one of the things I wondered as I was reading it was sort of what are the what are the stakes here for Brazilian music and musicians as they, you know, as their music and their the musical styles of Brazil are um, translated around the world and in the global North. I mean, one, you know, one stake is that you know, their whole country sort of gets exoticized, you know, in the in the eyes of the global north. What are some other things, you know, good and bad that sort of what are what's the fallout, so to speak, to being part of this larger network, do you think, for Brazilians and 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 sort of the branding of Brazil maybe is another way to think about it?
1: Well, yeah, this becomes part of the branding and the country largely embraces it because it's a success. If you want to know one thing about Brazil, when they're successful at something, everybody is proud of it. Um, So the only big exception to this was what happened to Carmen Miranda, which I don't talk about in the book, but really it's, she became successful in the United States, but she betrayed Brazilian tradition on a really fundamental level. And so she was rejected by the Brazilian public until she died. And then she was celebrated very typical, but you know, the Brazilians are good at, 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 football or football so yay football we're gonna like have world cup mania woohoo right suddenly the brazilian national volleyball team is good suddenly the entire country loves volleyball right there's this tendency to be really jingoistic and proudly nationalistic with a fervor whenever the country is good at something and so and i don't I, I, I don't see much of a difference with the United States, to be honest, right? Um, so, I mean, there is this, I, I think that's just part of how sport competition extending to culture goes, right? And Brazil's soft power around culture, specifically music, is really dependent on this idea that the country is diverse, right? That it has racial diversity at its core, that it is somehow... More refined than other parts of the world that have a large um, Afro diasporic population, right? That has been a big part of how they have promoted themselves. So there's this this conversation that's always happening in Brazil about what is the national tradition and what do we want to what do they want to project to the world? Um, and so a lot of genres of music don't ever get governmental support to go touring abroad, right? So you don't really see rock bands that don't sound that don't specifically pick up uh, a very clear allusion to national tradition and their sound getting promoted abroad. That doesn't happen. Hip hop artists only recently have been getting that kind of support. Um, and so when it's suddenly trendy among a certain niche audience, say people who like global bass music get really into a style of music called carioca funk, then the country will try to figure out how to promote that style internationally. And I talk about this key moment right before the um, the Olympics when the country actually went to a branding firm to figure out how to do this, to bring in racial diversity as part of their musical brand. It was an intentional thing. Um, and then all of a sudden you saw hip hop being celebrated. It was a very interesting moment, like, what what went on here? And there's a guy, a sociologist, um, who actually did all the research on this, and he published it in Portuguese. But he talked about how suddenly hip-hop and funk were okay as part of the brand because they were Black enough. And... For me, that's just a bit horrifying because of the massive injustice that black people in Brazil continue to face and the inability of the culture to actually find a language to talk about this. Um, The myth of racial democracy has been so powerful that talking about the fact that the racial wealth gap is so apparent will get people to say, oh, but that's not an issue of race. That's class, you know, and um, it. There are some people who talk about this as really being hegemonic, the inability to discuss this. Well, when you look at what gets promoted abroad, what Brazil puts on its, say, front page, or when there's a big celebration of Brazilian music in France, what kind of music do they promote there? Or what did they promote when the the flag was handed over in London in 2012 at that Olympic ceremonies? What did they promote in 2016? It's a really narrow vision that has to conform to what the elite classes of Brazil like about Afro-Brazilian culture. It's a very narrow vision. And so when I was trying to understand why only these very narrow genres got to the United States, it wasn't just the, the jerky critics in Downbeat Magazine or Rolling Stone or Melody Maker or whatever, Los Angeles Times, the New York Times. It was also what the people in Brazil were willing to support to send abroad. It wasn't just one side.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's just fascinating. And one of the other things, so you do talk about sort of gatekeepers and tastemakers and cultural influencers a lot to sort of, as you've been talking about, to explain, you know, like you were saying, what gets trans, you know, what gets circulated and what sort of sticks in that circulation. But one of the other things you talked about, and you brought in your own personal experience, is the influence today in in terms of the the circulation at the present moment of, uh, of the sort of background technologies and the kind of faceless, nameless chart makers and, you know, playlist curators, and, and you mm-hmm. were a curator, a playlist curator for a short time. And for a short and, time, I and, quit as soon as it was purchased by Apple. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, you know, um, and that was just fascinating to me, because I think, um seeing the people out front, the people who own the record companies or the critics or you know whatever that that's that's one way to to understand that taste making. But I'd love for you to explain a little bit more about the sort of background stuff that sort of happens out of sight. Um, yeah. and some of it is almost automated, you know in the in the way that it works because of the of the technology that we use today.
1: Sure, you're talking about the stuff I was doing with uh, algorithmic attention. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, I worked for a company
1: called Beats Music um, when I was out of work. You know, uh, I was a precariously employed academic for many years before I got my current job. And um, when I was doing this work, I was paid really poorly. (laughs) I, I always like to say, yeah, like, I remember when the guy who hired me told me how much we were paid. I was just like, wow. He's like, well, you can make the most of it, you know. And I remember I reached out to some of my contacts in Brazil because I did a lot of research among the record labels. And I reached out to one of these record labels and said, hey, you know, I'm working for this um, this particular streaming music company. And I remember the guy I talked to was like, is that like RDO? Like, I remember it was a different company. Like, his frame of reference was a different one. And um, yeah, so part of what happened with Beats, at least, was that we were encouraged to make deals with music industry people. We were encouraged to try to spotlight them so that they wouldn't be so upset about streaming music. That was part of the, the thing, right? Like, so I was like, great, I'll reach out to my independent label contacts in Brazil and I'll do this. But what I remember most was how completely stupid the back end of these systems was, right? So I would be trying to make a list and I couldn't find the recordings because there would be a spelling error or, you know, Beats at the time really wanted me to get the original artwork for whatever track I was trying to get on there. And you wouldn't be able to find it. And so then I ended up using a competing service to figure out where is the mistake, right? How can I find it? And it was really inefficient. Well, in that kind of environment, right, where you're being paid per playlist, and you're encouraged to make them as fast as possible, as soon as you hit any kind of friction with metadata errors, you're going to try to skip whatever is causing the problem, right? You think about, if you're getting paid, say, I don't know, 20 bucks an hour per playlist or $25, and you think about how much time it takes to navigate those errors, how, how worth it is it gonna be for you to go find the actual thing you want, the thing you know is good? And then how much time do you have to actually listen around beyond the stuff you already come in knowing? Right. If you're being paid 20, 25 bucks a playlist, the back end is clunky. The way that the record industry people have entered in their metadata is full of errors. Is it going to have diacritical marks? Right. In Portuguese, there are a ton of these diacritical marks, not just accents, but the tilde over A's and O's and E's. And like, it's just a a part of the language is they have the, the tilde just happens over A's, I'm exaggerating. But, um, you know, it's a, it's a part of the language. The C sometimes has the the flag on it, you know, that goes down. Sometimes the accent goes the other way, like in French. And you, if you can't figure out what, how are you supposed to make the playlist good? So that's one element, the element of like actually making deals with record labels. All of this is happening behind the scenes. You don't know. You're looking at this playlist. Has it been made it for you automatically? Did somebody pay a lot of money to have their picture featured on that playlist today on Spotify, right? If you look at this playlist and they've suddenly featured a certain artist, how much did that record label to make, pay to make that happen? You don't know. It's not public, right? It's a different kind of payola system, but for artists who are not singing in English and who are not from continental Europe and the United States and Australia, right? If we're going to like really expand Canada, right? If we're going to expand and talk about where breaking into the market is possible, how are you supposed to get your stuff out there? How much money do you pay for a service to promote you? How much does that eat into your bottom line? Is it really worth it in that case? You know, and I... Remember, I talked to a couple of these world music companies and the, like you would you'd get like a record company out of England that would be really invested in Brazilian music. And they'd be printing off LPs, right, that at, through Bandcamp or through shows where they would bring these artists. And then they would also be the ones who would be credited if you looked on Spotify or you look on Apple Music, who's who which record label is the one that's getting the credit. It's not the label from Brazil unless that label has decided to not give the licensing rights to that middleman. The middleman's making all the money. If it's Putumayo, if it's Stearns or MyZoom, right? Like these are these companies that do a lot of that work. Kumbancha is another one of these ones. And their Six Degrees Records was a really big one that did this. Where you go on Spotify, you think, well, at least they're going to get a penny, right? (laughs) But you look at how many different mediators there are between the musician, the record label. There's one. The record label and their digital rights management. Digital rights management and this new world music record label. And then the world music record label, their digital rights management, and Spotify. How many layers do you have to peel back before you get to that original relationship between AR pro- producer and artist. And I, I don't want to downgrade the role of AR. I think that they do an important role here, that they do a lot of really important stuff. But the difference is, you know, in the 80s, when a record would be licensed for international use, the producer of the international record would remaster it to sound good on Western sound systems, on American and European sound systems, because the original production of the record was not for that. So there would be some real intervention in making sure it worked in the digital process. But you look at what's happening here and all they're doing is pushing numbers around. There's no change in what the music sounds like. The file is the same. The only difference is who's getting paid and how much less of the pot are they getting, right? So if you listen to, say, there's this really great artist named Criolu, right? He's a really big deal. and you listen to him on your favorite streaming music service. What are the odds that it's actually coming from his original record deal? How much money is he actually getting? It's, it's, he's not getting anything really unless you stream it from like YouTube. He's more likely to get the money in that, in that case. But it's just really quite astonishing how many intermediaries there are at this point.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, I know my students seem to think that streaming is this, you know, gateway to anyone can be successful because we have streaming services now and they have no, you know, it's very hard for me to explain. And and your book really helps with this is is the, the, how in some ways it's actually makes it harder (laughs) because there's so little money in it and you need so much um, support to get beyond you know, someone's homemade playlist at the very bottom of the, yeah, of the pack, even- You know, and and it's really and there, like you were saying, there's there's all these sort of technological challenges as well as monetary um, issues that go along with with this. So it may look very democratic and very open to everyone, but it's it's you know it's still very much controlled
1: yes. by and
0: certain you know by these sort of commercial um, considerations.
1: Yeah, in 2015, I had a conversation with this really fantastic Brazilian pop singer. And she said to me, This is in 2015, the same people who are making money off world music now were making money in the 90s because she's been in the industry that long. I said, You're kidding me. She's like, The same people still control the touring. The same people still control these companies that promote us internationally. We don't make that much money if we make anything at all when we do this. It's more of like we want to we want to get out and we want to go do this but it's that's not the incentive for most of these artists it's you know they want to be part of of the international exchange of musical ideas they want to they want to get out there they're but they're not actually making much when they go to say london or uh france you know some of these bands make money off of that but it's uh, that's not why they do it And in fact, they have to get grants from Brazil, the Brazilian government to go do it because they can't they don't make enough money in the process.
0: Well, you bring up this world music label, which, um, you know, you're critiquing right now, I think, in some ways. And there's been a lot of ink spilled over the issue, the problematic issues of sort of that label on the way that marketing works in world music. Um, And you you identified Brazilian music becoming part of that world music marketing in 1989 when several important records come out at the same time. And that's um, a, a point where the difference between the UK and the U S and the Brazilian reception really comes to the fore. And I think it's a great example to show the complexity of the story you're telling. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that moment and that, um, you know, when world music comes to, or, you know, Brazil comes into world music and that whole marketing apparatus.
1: Yeah. Well, because what, I mean, world music as, a, as a, a a name was invented in England and it was mostly for the music that was circulating from former British colonies. Let's be real. Right. So Asia, Africa, um, and it was like for field recordings and this interest, but in, in music that wasn't from English speaking, countries and wasn't being performed by mostly white artists, right? Like it's really racialized, very obviously about empire. There's interest in that in the United States too, but there, the version of world music that starts to happen in this country also includes reggae also includes music from the Caribbean in a really uh, different way than what you see happening in England. Like the, the split is just so apparent. You look at the press around this stuff in In the United States, it's like reggae and Latin America and African music, right? And almost no Indian music whatsoever. In England, it's like African music, Middle Eastern music, and Asian music. Why? That's where the former colonies are. If you look at um, the school of, oh yeah, SOAS, the University of London, right? That is School of Oriental and African Studies. That the name of that, School as part of the University of London is to cope with the former empire, right? That that it's to understand it and in England's role. But in these magazines, it's a lot of collaborations, right? So British rock figures like Peter Gabriel and Sting were doing collaborations with top musicians in certain parts of the world. And Sting continues to do these collaborations. He's still doing it. Um, but Peter Gabriel would be like, on the cover of the world music section of NME, for example, Um, and for forever, it just felt like I would be turning pages and they would be talking about this. And the press in England was so cynical about this. They thought that this was all just like Orientalist empire nostalgia stuff. Um, There is some really remarkable criticism and in part that's because the British tradition of rock criticism is just much more pointed than what we get in this country. But they were so skeptical of all of this stuff. Meanwhile, Rolling Stone and Spin magazine and um there was another one I think called Beat Magazine, I think. Um, that I looked at were just like, yay, we love this stuff, you know, not not really being mean at all, ever. Like there was no critique happening there. Um, and I think it's because of the experience of this is our former empire. <laughs> and like, we're very skeptical about this, right? Like, look at you colonialists. Like, they, they were really quite uh, critical of people like David Byrne, who, you know, when he started looking at Brazil, the British press was really not happy about it. They were very, very critical in comparison with how his efforts were received in the United States by Rolling Stone and Spin, etc. Right? The, the difference when David Byrne started collaborating with Brazilian artists when he put out an album called Ray Momo, which was Brazilian and salsa, uh, Brazilian and, and uh, Caribbean music. Um, they were like, "What is this guy? He's looking for new music like this. He can't hold a beat. Like he's awkward. He's." Like, and there was a lot of very interesting disabledist language that they used about him. Um, and when he got to the US, there was also some racist commentary, but they weren't so angry, right? And then he put out uh, this compilation. The first compilation of his was called Beleza Tropical, which means like beautiful tropical, right? <laughs> like gorgeous. And it's this very important compilation that was basically David Byrne's favorite music from Brazil. It was very clear it was his own collection because there were some strange tracks on there, but mostly it's like a greatest hits of Brazilian MPB, which is Musica Popular Brasileira, which became really important in the period fall after the dictatorship rose to power um, in the sixties. And he's like his favorite tracks from all of this stuff up until the redemocratization in the country. But England is like, we don't like this. This is weird. You don't fit into our expectations of like Peter Gabriel doing what he did. Right. And Peter Gabriel did a lot of things like he founded a world music festival. Right. And and he was he founded a world music record label called Real World. Like, okay, David Byrne founded a record label. (laughs) He did a similar thing. He didn't have a a festival, but he made a documentary about Brazilian music and culture. So they're doing this stuff where it's kind of paternalistic, pretty imperialistic. But in that moment, it's also tapping into this late 80s desire to sort of take in the whole world. And it's this do-gooder impulse that was coming out of, say, Live Aid, for example, or... um, the Musicians Against Apartheid of musician activism alongside the rise of environmental awareness. So you had these things coming together in this moment. And so David Byrne could make this album and have it get a completely different reception in England than it gets in the United States among the critics because of this legacy of empire and this intense cynicism around these kinds of gestures from musicians.
0: That's a very long answer but you asked me a, a complex question. well no I, I I I thought it was really fascinating and a, and a great moment of of seeing the differences and also you know as you were answering I was thinking about how you know it just uh, the british have had to deal with the fallout of imperialism in a way that americans don't want to like we don't like no. to ex- acknowledge our imperialism at all nah. and it's sort of we just don't even like, talk about our empire we don't, we don't even and, talk about the fact that it exists other than like
1: maybe we talk about settler coloniality maybe but yeah. we don't talk about quam we don't talk about the philippines
0: right right like that's just not Right, and yeah. our sort of soft imperialism over all of South yeah. America and Central America, where and just as you know, the Brazilians are not able to talk about race in a way that you know is openly um, coping with their racial issues, we cannot deal with our imperialistic issues, and so yeah,
1: I, I, we're I mean, you, just look at this, the discourse around Puerto Rico, like right, it's just yeah, it's absolutely.
0: Endless. So I mean, I think your project really brings out these misunderstandings, these misrecognitions, these blind spots, these, these areas where different places are not able to talk about, you know, the, the big, the big open secrets in their, in their cultures, right? It sort of brings out those, those moments um, where we don't understand each other or where we can look at one country and say, well, why aren't you talking about this? But then in, in, in the home country there's something else that country is not talking about yeah, so and, it's quite interesting
1: and i think part of the reason why these british critics felt so entitled to critique british coloniality is because they have been dealing with the fallout from bad imper- uh, imperialistic decisions ever since you know like the medieval era right like ever since ireland like they have been dealing with the fallout from this. And so I'm like, well, and a lot of these guys end up being critics and they come from working class and middle class backgrounds. So they're not so connected to this idea of a victorious England. And so I'm I'm I, i I'm pretty I, I empathize an awful lot with why they're so nasty (laughs) because they really are i'm like yeah you know like they're mean like some of i there are some choice quotes in the book you'll you'll have some fun uh but it's 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 on a level that you just don't see um in this country right now
0: yeah (sighs) Well, we've had this great conversation. We could talk for hours more, but perhaps we should wrap this up and, and encourage people to read this book so you can dig in more in, into all these fascinating issues you bring up. Um, what are you doing now that you have uh, finally published this book and moved on? I mean, finally, I will only say finally in that you have said that it is, you know, this is it sort of 15 years, 15 years of, of, yeah. of effort and research and um, to work on this. What, what are you doing now?
1: Well, I have a couple of things going on. Um, I'm co-editing a handbook um, with another scholar named Jason Beaster-Jones. Um, we're co-editing a handbook for Oxford University Press on global music industry studies. So that's a thing I'm doing. And we have way too many contributors. It's it's going to be beautiful. Um, I'm also, I've been engaged with some co-editing and writing projects on topics that aren't necessarily about Brazil anymore. So I... Uh, collaborated with a couple of other young emerging scholars for a special issue of American Music, for example, that was all about digital listening, um, where I talked about my experience of being a curator for Beats Music, and I'm doing another one uh, with the same co-editors. We're going to be doing a different issue um, for a different journal. I'm going to keep it quiet, but that's going to be about issues of surveillance and privacy with listening. So I've been really interested in this question because of my experience of uh, what happened when I was working for Beats Music and my current experience of having to use these technologies when I teach or just play music. Um, And another thing I'm doing is I'm starting to do some more research in Portugal because I'm really interested in the ways that in the Portuguese speaking world, there are all of these really interesting transatlantic affiliations that are popping up where musicians from, especially queer musicians, trans musicians from Brazil, from Angola, from Cape Verde, from um, Lisbon, for example, they're in dialogue, they're working together, they're using similar tactics to try to build audiences. And so, That's like a way off in the future. That's kind of like a long-term project that I cannot wait to dive back into once travel is once again, a safe thing. But there you go. I have well, my, I have my hands in lots of different things. It pots.
0: sounds like it, and I'm certainly looking forward to seeing some of those projects come to fruition and into print. Um, so this is Kristen Turner and New Books in Music, and my guest today has been Kay Goldschmidt talking about Basso Mundo, Brazilian music, and transnational media industries. Thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you.